You can open your Bibles to John chapter 1, 29 through 51. That's where we're going to be today. And as you're opening your Bibles, I want to tell you just a brief story. It's something that I read on the Gospel Coalition's website uh, about a year ago. And they were doing an interview of a pastor from the Anglican Church of Canada. And he was telling that 17 years ago, so we're talking a while ago, 17 years ago, that the diocese, or the part of the, the church, the, his church was a part of a, a group of churches, the Anglican Church of Canada, they voted to recognize and bless same-sex marriage. So this is 17 years ago, this isn't last year. And that created a dilemma for some of the churches. And so in this meeting that they had gathered together, leaders from eight of the churches stood up and walked out. They then took a vote because the, the, whole, the entire denomination was moving in a direction that some people felt was against the scriptures. It says later, when their congregations devoted to lead the denomination, the, dis the decision to do so were nearly unanimous. To me, he says, this is the most surprising part of the story. Why did almost all of those pe people choose a path that would lead to unpopularity, to court costs, and to losing their buildings? And the pastor says this, listen, we didn't preach towards leaving our diocese. We didn't preach towards leaving the denomination. All we did was we kept preaching the gospel. We just kept preaching through books of the Bible. He said we were preaching through Galatians. And when we started preaching through the books of the Bible, it became so abundantly clear that this is what had to happen. And that was his advice. And so he's giving advice to pastors when I asked him what he'd tell pastors in an increasingly hostile society. How can you best lead your flock? How can you strengthen them so that if the time comes, they'd vote to follow Jesus and not the culture? And his answer was, preach the gospel. To love Jesus is to have seen Jesus. And where, church, do we see Jesus? In his word. To follow Jesus is to have found Jesus. And where do we find Jesus? In his word. This morning, I want us to look in a fresh way. I want us to see Jesus. I want us to find Jesus in a fresh way. And so let's go to his word and read it. John chapter 1, verse 29. We'll go through 51. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, that he is John the Baptist. And he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him. But for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. 
I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? Which means, and they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to them, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel, Nathaniel, sorry, my lips are not working today. My, my mouth feels cold, I guess. Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. To, to love Jesus is to have seen Jesus. To follow Jesus is to have found Jesus. And here in this text, we see that happening. John the Baptist says two times, I have seen. And when the disciples are beginning to be called, what do they say? We have found. I have seen, we have found. Have you seen? Have you found? That's the question before us. Now I want to focus in on one particular title used of Jesus by John the Baptist two times. There's a number of titles, we pointed that out last week, but I think that this one stands prominent. Behold, the Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God. Now, I want you to know, when, when you hear the words, the Lamb of God, it probably means something to you. Something comes to mind. When these first disciples of John the Baptist and these first disciples of Jesus heard that phrase, 
they had actually never heard that phrase before. They never heard that title used for God. In fact, if you... Thanks, man. In fact, if you search the scriptures, you will find the title, Lamb of God, only used by, in two different books of the Bible, same writer. So you got one here. John uses the phrase, the title, Lamb of God, to describe Jesus. And then in another book that he wrote, the Revelation, Revelation, he uses that title as well. But what I want us to, to recognize is that when these first disciples heard that, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, they didn't, they didn't immediately know what was being said. In fact, there's some controversy over this John's use of this title. There are a lot of theologians that said John just made this up. This Lamb of God stuff. Where did it come from? So people have debated whether that's really a title for Jesus or not. And But what, what we need to see here is that in saying, in calling Jesus the Lamb of God, it brought some things to mind. It may not have been a title they had ever heard for the Messiah, but it brought ideas and Old Testament passages to mind. And it's probably happening for you in the same way. What I want to do is just unpack this Lamb of God for a little bit so that it, so that it brings on life for us, so that it means something for us. And I want to talk about the source, the significance, and the scope. So I just want to talk about the Lamb of God for a minute. What kinds of things does the Lamb of God imagery bring to mind? Well, one of the things we see is it says, Behold the Lamb of God. The Lamb is of God. The source of the Lamb is God. God is the one who provides the Lamb. What this reminds us of is a story from Genesis 22 where we know, many of us know the story of Abraham, whom God called on to sacrifice his own son, Isaac. And, and Abraham, who trusted God, who believed God, who, who trusted that God could even bring his son back from the dead, was prepared to sacrifice his son. And as he was getting ready to... to, to execute his son, God, the Holy Spirit, holds him back. And, and after holding him back, we know the story goes on to say that he provided a ram for the offering. God provided a substitute. God provided a means. God provided the lamb. This is what people may, would have been thinking about when they heard this phrase, the Lamb of God. He's the, the Lamb of God means that He is the source of our salvation. What is the comfort for us in that? Church, we've got to remember over and over again that we could never save ourselves. Now, some of us might never believe that, that I could save myself, but we actually try to. 
We, we try to do things so that we could get God to approve of us. We get God to, to justify us through our actions. We, we live our lives kind of in a, in, a, in a line of comparison. We know that we could never achieve perfection, but as long as we feel like we're better than 50% of the rest of the world, that somehow God will grade on a curve and take us. That's what we do, right? And when we have a bad day, we move ourselves down the line in guilt and shame. But we get up tomorrow and we try to do a little bit better and see if we can do some good works and move ourselves back up to the head of the class. The source of our salvation is not ourselves and not our good works. The source of our salvation is a loving God who in grace has provided the Lamb Jesus to cover all of our sins through his perfect life, his death, his blood, and his resurrection, and his ascension. Praise God that we are saved because he has provided the Lamb of God that we don't save ourselves. The, the glory of the, the gospel story is that we could never get to God on our own. God came to get us. He was the source of our salvation. You with me, church? This is the Lamb of God. He is the, the source of our salvation. Let's talk for a minute about the significance of the Lamb of God. The significance of this. There are other passages that would have come to mind as we think about the significance of this. Exodus 12. Get the story of the Passover Lamb. This is a story that would have been in, in their minds. They may have never heard the title Lamb of God, but they knew a story where a lamb was involved. We know the story of the Passover lamb, remember? In the plagues, and, and Moses was leading the people and wanting to lead the people out of slavery in Egypt, and the, and the plagues came, and, and, the, and God delivered his people through the Passover. Remember? There was a lamb. Each of the families was, was supposed to take a lamb and sacrifice it and take the blood of that lamb and, and cover their door frames. And when the angel of death came to kill the firstborn, they would pass over. The angel of death would pass over the, the homes that were covered in blood. It's not hard to see the picture, is it? If you are covered in the blood of Jesus Christ, then, then death is going to pass over you. The punishment that you deserve, you'll never receive because of God's provision of Jesus, because of the significance of his death on our behalf. It says, the scripture says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That reminds us of something in the, in the Old Testament. There was one of and this was a goat, it wasn't a lamb, but the priest would lay his hands on the goat. And, and he would confess the sins of the people. And then they set that goat free, sent him out into the wilderness. What was the picture there? He's taking the people's sins away from them forever. Isn't it important to remember that Jesus takes away all of our sins? The guilt of our sins transferred to Him 
and then removed from us forever. I think there's few aspects of the gospel that need more repetition than that truth right there. That need more frequent reaffirmation than this one. Because there's a lot of people who struggle for survival beneath the crushing burden of shame and guilt for your sins. And what God reminds us through the Lamb of God is that He, through Jesus, has removed your sin from you forever, cast into the sea of forgetfulness. Do you remember some of your worst things you've ever done? Things that God knows and maybe nobody else knows. The significance of the Lamb of God is that that sin was laid on Jesus and the consequences for it removed from you forever. Praise the Lord. What other significance do we see in this? There's another passage of Scripture I hope you remember. Isaiah 53. Did that come to mind? Remember it tells us that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and like a sheep he was led to slaughter. Innocent before those who were leading him to slaughter. Kept his mouth silent. That came to the Israelites' mind. When they were when John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, they thought, man, maybe that's that Isaiah 53 passage that we've never quite understood. This is the significance of the Lamb of God. And then I said, let's consider the scope. The scope. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Without exception, every kind of sin, every kind of evil is covered. Aren't you thankful for that? There's no categories of God. So this is what we do. We have thoughts. We have thoughts like, man, I wonder if God could really forgive me for that. I wonder if God, I wonder if God's just tolerating me. I wonder if I'll get to the end of all things and see that I, that sin wasn't really covered, that, 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 I, that he could never cover that. What the, what the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world communicates to us is that all sins can be covered in the blood of Jesus. There's no sin that's ever been committed by anyone in this room that can't be sufficiently covered by the blood of Jesus. Amen? That truth means so much to us. That phrase, the Lamb of God, should be so significant to us. Now let me say this. Let me say that when John the Baptist came saying, Behold the Lamb of God, he didn't understand everything that I just said to you. He didn't understand all of it. We know he didn't, because when he gets imprisoned, he has questions. He's the one that came saying, I must decrease, he must increase. 
He, he got something of this. He got glimpses of this, but he lived in confusion. He winds up seriously persecuted for his faith in Christ. And due to the whims of a, of a privileged daughter of the queen who dances in a way that, that pleases all the men gathered, and King Herod says, what do you want me to give to you? She says, give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the man that had served faithfully God ends up with his head cut off and brought up and mocked. He was confused at times. Let me just tell you something about this. We are not going to figure out everything before we get home with Jesus. God gives us what we need to take the next step in following Him. Have you got a glimpse of Jesus? Do you, did you, have you seen a glimpse of Jesus? Are you getting a glimpse of Jesus today as the Lamb of God is described? All you have to do is follow Him with what you have. It doesn't mean that there's no challenges. It doesn't mean that there's no doubting. It doesn't mean we're all in process in following Jesus. And in some ways that encourages, doesn't it? Because I can get up tomorrow and, and I, can, I can try to serve Jesus today. But there's something new in following Jesus for me today. And I've been following Jesus for a long time now. I get excited about the prospect of following Jesus because I'm learning new things about him every time I look to see him and to find him in his word. There's one other thing I want to just mention about John the Baptist, then we'll move on. John the Baptist, as I've already said, in some ways extraordinary, in some ways just like us. But at the height of his fame, which was right now, he was causing a stir, all kinds of people following him. At the height of his fame, he begins to point other people away from himself and towards Jesus. He's not, he's not concerned about continue, continuing to amass fame for himself. He wants the light no longer on himself but on Jesus. He's willing to let his fame decrease by letting his followers leave him to follow Christ. And that's what happened. A lot of these guys that Jesus is going to call were following John the Baptist. And John is saying, don't follow me anymore, follow him. I want that kind of humility for me. I want that kind of humility for you. People that will actually live their lives in such a way that the focus actually leaves us and goes to Jesus. At a time when the public trust of leaders is at an all-time low. At a time when even the public trust of Christian leaders, Christian leaders falling, turning away, friends of mine who were pastors that I respected, books that I have on my shelves that I don't know what to do with now. 
men that I received from or was taught by, books that have helped me, have renounced their faith in Jesus at a time like this. The world is in desperate need for preachers and for people who are prepared to mortgage their personal ambition and their popularity out of a self-consuming desire to see Jesus get the glory that he deserves. That's why I love Count Zinzendorf. And credited to him. It's something I try to repeat to myself often. What I want to do with my life is preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Because that's what's going to happen. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That's a great motto for your life. That's a great epitaph for your grave. Do you ever write your epitaph? Here lies a guy who preached the gospel, died, and has been completely forgotten. Except by who matters. Except for he hasn't been forgotten by Jesus. Following Jesus begins with a recognition of Jesus as the great Savior, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Have you seen Jesus? Have you seen him the way John the Baptist has seen him? To follow Jesus is to have experienced, is to have seen Jesus, and we see him in the scripture. To love Jesus is to, to have found him, and we find him in the scriptures. Now, I want to take a look. There is so much, oh, I want to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do some of this right now. But I am, I am never, and I never could anyway. Sometimes I feel like I get through everything in, this, in the passage. I will never get through everything in this passage. I know that. It's impossible for any preacher to do that. There is just some incredible truth in this. But I want to look at the lives of some of the first disciples that were called. They are those that say, verse 41, we have found. We have found the Lamb of God has come and we have found him. John tells him, Behold the Lamb of God. Two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Now, just so you know, these were, this was not like the first time they had considered Jesus. They, have probably, they had heard about Jesus. They had been listening to John the Baptist proclaim about this coming one. It wasn't like they were just fishing, dropped everything, and left at that moment. It kind of has that sense. What was happening is they were considering these things. And, and all of a sudden, it's, 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 it's like they're making preparations. Like, I think this is what I want to do with my life. I think this is what it, God has called me to. So they followed Jesus. Jesus says, what are you looking for? Which is a good question. Jesus will ask you that. If you have any interest in following Jesus at all, he'll say, what are you after? What do you want? What do you want me to do for you? What are you, what are you looking for in me? Do you want me to be the Lamb of God for you? Because I will. 
So we should consider what we're looking for Jesus to do for us. I think what this passage does is it reminds us, and contextually what's happening, and even John the Baptist was confused about this, they were confused about Jesus and the role that he would play. They thought that he was a political leader that was going to come and make things right politically. How apropos for the time that we're in. Political turmoil. Like I've never experienced in my lifetime. What are you looking for Jesus to do? Here's, here's, here's what I, I think this passage teaches us. Jesus wants to be the Lamb of God, the highest priority of our lives. Our identity is in Him. First, He's the controlling center of our life right now. Not our political ide ideology. And I think too often we have, we, would, we might not say it this way, but functionally we do this. We place our political ideology and our identity up here and we ask Jesus to fit into it. And he won't ever do that. He's up here and everything else is beneath him, submitted to him. So we get this, we, we meet the first disciple. One of the two who heard him who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew. Now I want you to imagine you're Andrew. Andrew has this uh, for the rest of his life. Nobody remembers Andrew for who Andrew is. They remember Andrew for who he was related to. You see it? Who's he related to? see it? Verse 40. One of the two heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew. And here's what the scriptures say. You know, Simon Peter's brother. Oh. Why is that important? What kinds of people does God call to himself? He calls people like Andrew who live in the shadows. He calls people like Andrew who, who are remembered for who they're related to, not seemingly for themselves. Peter was an immediate means of identification. Andrew's not alone. Many people leave, live their lives in obscurity. They live there, many of us will live our lives overshadowed by others, by a brother, a sibling, uh, a rival, a colleague, a parent, a boss. That's, the, uh, that's a daily experience for a lot of people to live in the shadows. What's good to be assured of right here is that's not the way that God sees it. The way that God sees it is that every life is personally valuable to him and there is no one that is overshadowed in the kingdom of heaven god has no favorites each of his children you are special to him and you are known by him and you're not overshadowed by anyone in his kingdom now andrew does something and i i think this is so important to see The first thing he did 
first, verse 41, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Andrew followed Jesus before Peter, but God uses Andrew to bring Peter to Jesus. In Peter's life, Andrew features prominently because Andrew was the one who first told me about Jesus. He's the first one that said, come and see. We found him. We found the Messiah. Would you come and see for yourself? He thus becomes, Carson says, the first in a long line of successors who have discovered that the most effective and common Christian ministry is the private witness of brother to brother and friend to friend. If I asked you to raise your hand, how many people have responded to Christ or come to Christ through preaching? It would be a smaller number. If I said, how many of you have come to Christ through watching a TV program or listening to a podcast? It would be a smaller number. But if I said, raise your hand if you've come to Christ because someone, a friend, a, a relative, a parent, shared the, the gospel of Jesus with you, that's primarily what we would see because that's primarily how the gospel has been spread for thousands of years. Some of you need to remember that. You need to remember that what God has entrusted to you, he's come to you as your lamb of God, and now he wants you to go back and tell somebody, come and see. Come and see. When's the last time you told somebody to come and see? How far do you have to go back in your life to think about, when's the last time I told someone about Jesus? If Jesus is the Lamb of God to us, then he should be our favorite thing. And it's not, it's not, it comes naturally to, for me to tell people about things that make me happy. Don't you do that? If I buy something new, if I have a cool toy, if I get a new car, I'm like, yo, come and see this. Come and see for yourself what I got. That's the attitude we should have regarding Jesus and all that he's done for us. He's our greatest treasure. We should be regularly telling people to come and see for yourself if he isn't who he says he is. All right, moving on. Let's just take a look at, oh, let me just, let me, let me look here. Now I'm, I'm scrapping that. Uh, Tom, bring the band. We're getting to the, I told, Tom had a key word that he was waiting for. He was waiting for me to get to Nathaniel, but I have like three more moves before I get to Nathaniel. And I want to search and see if there's something else that I want to tell you. I want to say one word about Peter. Peter looks, Jesus looks at Peter and changes his name on the spot. Simon, the son of John. Simon Bar-Jonah was probably his name. He'd never heard the word Peter before. It means rock. So Jesus looks at him and speaks a word of promise to him. 
And I want you to see something, that when Jesus calls people out, it is shocking that Jesus regularly approaches people from the perspective of their potential. You and I don't do that. We regularly approach people from the perspective of what they are before us right now. And oftentimes, we're not happy with that. Here's Peter, this explosive one. This, this, he had a leadership gift, but man, does he stick his foot in his mouth. That's one of the reasons why we love Peter, because he acts like us. But Jesus looks past all of his flaws and speaks a word of promise over him for what he sees in him. The vision, one writer has said, of future potential can be a deeply effective means to the realizing of that potential. When you're sharing Jesus with someone, I want you to try to share it with them, not as, as, and, and thinking about what they are now, but thinking about what God is going to make them to be. When you're dealing with your kids, parents with young children, oftentimes you're dealing with your kids and you lack faith for them because you see them for who they are right now. And what God wants to do is give you eyes for what they're going to be. And when you start to speak potential to your children, when you start to speak potential for someone who's struggling, that becomes a powerful motivator for realizing the potential that God sees in us. Aren't you thankful that God saw you for what he was going to make you to be and what he is making you to be and not what you were? Aren't you glad about that? You are not who you were. 10 years ago. If you've been following Jesus for 10 years, you're not the same person. God has made you to be something that you maybe could have never envisioned. I never once thought about being a pastor until the night I was baptized. I never thought about it, ever. And I got into the water to be baptized, and the person that baptized me shared a prophecy over me that I was going to be a pastor. I almost laughed. I fell getting down into the baptismal because of the things they said about my wife who was baptized a minute before me. I was like, Sarah, I laughed. What's he talking about? God saw what he's going to make out of me and he's not done with me yet. And he's not done with you yet. And so I want to speak a word of potential all of, over, over all of you because you are being conformed into the image of the Lamb of God. You're being conformed into the image of Jesus. You can't follow what you haven't found. You can't love what you haven't seen. And we see Jesus through the Scriptures. And one day, we see with faith now, but one day... There is coming a day where we are going to see Jesus face to face. No more faith. It'll be face to face. And with a loud voice, we're going to join with myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands saying, Worthy is the Lamb 
who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Give him glory, church. Let's stand and end this service in song.